What happens when the place that should be the safest in the world becomes the place of greatest threat? Well, we're going to speak with someone today who knows all about that, who's lived through it. We're going to speak today with Melissa Oden. Melissa was a survivor of a failed saline infusion abortion. And Melissa founded and is the director of the Abortion Survivors Network. This network seeks to educate the public about failed abortions and provide emotional, mental, and spiritual support for abortion survivors. Melissa is also the author of You Carried Me, a daughter's memoir, and she's a frequent contributor in all sorts of pro-life and important media outlets such as Focus on the Family, Alliance Defending Freedom, and Fox News. Melissa has testified before congressional committees, and she has done so even beside AUL's very own Catherine Glenn Foster. Melissa has a master's degree in social work and is a prolific speaker, writer, and mother. We're excited to speak with her today to learn more about her incredible journey, her testimony, and all the work that she does now to provide help and to hope for those who need it. I am Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law from Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. I am Tom Shakely, joined by Ellie Jockums, and we are thrilled to speak today with Melissa Oden. Melissa, thanks so much for making the time. Thanks so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to speak with you. I know, I think one of the first times you and I crossed paths was probably in Philadelphia. Um, prior to my work with Americans United for Life, I worked with a group there um, called the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network, and I served on the board of a group called the Pro-Life Union of Greater Philadelphia. And I know you came to speak at one point, probably in 2016, 17, roughly, to, I mean, there were thousands of pro-lifers in Philly there, and you just, I mean, brought the house down uh, speaking about the reality of abortion and the reasons for hope. Yeah, I remember that event really well. It was, I think, November of 2018 or 2019. And, you know, I remember looking out in that crowd and just thinking how incredible it was to see such a large group of committed pro-lifers. And, you know, when I'm in the midst of a crowd like that, Tom, what I always realize is I am just one of many in a room full of sacrificial people who give every single day to lead to a moment like this where we live in a world where Roe has been overturned. I know. It's such an incredible time. Uh, it's a pivotal time, I think, for, for the country and for our cause. Um, and so let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about your, your background and advocacy in particular. So uh, at, at seven months, your biological mother um, sought a saline abortion um, intended to terminate her pregnancy, intended to terminate you. Um, and yet, despite all those odds, uh, you not only survived, but you thrived. Um, can you speak to us about, about all of that? <laughs> yeah, where do you start with that, right? right. We'll, we'll unpack it one piece at a time. Yeah, the reality is babies were surviving abortions before Roe versus Wade. Babies survived abortions during Roe versus Wade. And yes, babies are still surviving abortions even after Roe versus Wade was overturned. You know, from a historical context, I am one of those babies who survived during Roe. Uh, I am fast approaching 45. And it seems, you know, somewhat strange that I have to tell the world how old I am, but it 
shows people the truth about abortion and what has happened in our country. And as you shared, Tom, my birth mother, you know, really fits most statistics when it comes to abortion. Still today, she was 19, a college student, not married to my birth father. And like so many women, she was not given any other choice than abortion. She was forced at the hands of her, her mother, my maternal grandmother, to have that saline infusion abortion. I now know that she didn't know for most of the pregnancy that she was even pregnant with me. And my grandmother was uh, a nurse, uh, worked in the OB, you know, worked hand in hand with uh, that OB doctor who at one moment would be delivering babies and the next moment would be ending their lives. And so my grandmother recognized the signs of pregnancy and also knew how to make a secret forced abortion take place, bypassing hospital regulations and procedures. And that's what ultimately led to what should have been my death and put my birth mother's life in danger. Can you speak a little bit, I think, in particular about your grandmother's role? I think, you know, some would hear your story and they would say, you know, I, I think Catherine Glenn Foster here at America's Center for Life uh, here's this. And, you know, I know I've received emails to this effect after, you know, any time that there's congressional testimony, but really anytime there's media visibility, people will write. Um, and more or less, the, the message is the same from pro-abortion folks. They'll say, in effect, you know, I'm sorry that, you know, Catherine had that uh, experience of forced abortion, but, you know, that's no reason uh, to advocate against abortion. That's, you know, I'm sorry that trauma happened to you, but really you shouldn't be trying to change things for anybody else. I mean, how do you respond to something like that? Yeah, it's so common, isn't it? I always say, you know, anybody whose story doesn't fit the predominant narrative to abortion, you know, receives that kind of shame and silence, you know, essentially that little pat on the head that says, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry for you. Um, but just because that happened to you doesn't mean we're going to change anything. And you can have a traumatic story and we're going to support you in that, but you sure better not use that to save lives, right? You shouldn't be using your story to save the lives of women from being coerced, forced, hurt by abortion, and you shouldn't be using your story to save lives of children. I mean, it makes no sense. Uh, and, you know, it's really interesting because I'm coming off a weekend where we had 25 abortion survivors. Uh, one even traveled internationally to come in. And so we had our second annual retreat. And every single person in that room, Tom, no matter what their experience, no matter what type of abortion procedure, whether they were raised in their biological family or they were placed for adoption, Every single one of them could relate to what that experience is, which is being told, yeah, I'm so sorry that that happened to you, but be quiet. You need to sit in it. Don't share it with anybody. Don't use it uh, for anything that may touch abortion policy. And it is so patronizing uh, for women like Catherine and for women like my birth mother, but it really, I mean, I can tell you it's patronizing to abortion survivors that people would say, uh, yeah, no, you can't have a place at this table. I'm curious too, you know, in the conversation around, um, I mean, I think of, you know, a few years ago, right, uh, now former, thankfully, governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam's infamous comments on a morning radio program where he was speaking there, you know, and this, this is a guy who's a physician by training uh, prior to being governor, prior to entering into political life. 
and talking um, in very kind of clinical and stark terms about, you know, well, uh, with some babies, you know, uh, that, that might have problems, we'll deliver, and I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, we'll deliver them, uh, we'll kind of put them off to the side, and we'll have a conversation with the mother. Uh, and I'm not paraphrasing that much. I mean, that's that's more or less uh, what he said. Um, you know, and the, I think the key thing that stuck with people was, what does that mean, have a conversation? Uh, you know, is he implying there that life-saving care, uh, or perhaps even basic care of, of the sort that any newborn would be provided, would be paused, would be put on hold, would be denied, depending on how that conversation goes. Um, I, I mean, it's for, to my ear, it was a really clear thing. I get that, you know, if you're not as you know close to the movement or following the issues as closely, maybe it seems more ambiguous. Um, but those realities there that uh, that there are uh, even you know what some call post-birth uh, abortions in effect, uh, or just outright infanticide. Uh, that those are happening um, in addition to the sort of violence and neglect that's inherent in every abortion. Um, th- those are the sort of things that, you know, it seems like we hear that that common thing of uh, those aren't happening. And if they were happening, it would be good, actually. Right. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, heads, heads, you lose uh, tails. We win type of thing. Uh, I mean, how do you react to that? It was really interesting when when he first spoke those comments, something hit within me that. I hadn't really thought about before. I am adopted and found out my story when I was 14 and, you know, went on this long path of, you know, first being completely traumatized and like many survivors going down through a a pretty um, dangerous path for myself personally in the midst of my pain. But one of the things that I was told really early on by my adoptive parents, and and mind you, they are folks who are very much outside of the pro-life movement, right? They were just ordinary people who knew that they were called to adopt um, this little girl who had survived an abortion. But my mom and dad had been told that I had been laid aside after I was accidentally born alive in that final step of the saline infusion abortion decades ago. And, you know, my mom and dad bravely told that to me. And to be honest, there were so many times where, you know, I'd kind of think about it and go, nah, yeah. I mean, what is that, right? What does that really mean? And I'm not going to tell anybody about that. I mean, it's, I've never heard anybody talk about that. And then when Governor Northam spoke those comments, I felt it within me where I went, no, wait a minute. I've heard those words before. And so I knew in a moment in time what he was talking about, and I knew what it meant for me. And it's so interesting because right around that time, I started to have some contact with one of the nurses who was working in the NICU when I was ultimately rushed off there after being laid aside. And, you know, we've never had contact with the one nurse who was present for all of it happening and rushed me off to the NICU. But now I communicate with this nurse who received me in the NICU and could say, right, it was a tall blonde nurse she made it clear that she was unwilling to just leave you there to die like she is, she had been directed to do. And I think these stories exist in the shadows time and time again, whether it's a survivor, a family member, a nurse, a clinic worker. We have survivors, Tom, who are abandoned at the clinic after they're accidentally born alive. We have siblings who were there waiting in the waiting areas as their mother was having the abortion 
and mothers have abandoned those children in the waiting room also. So there are all these stories that exist in the shadows and we have been fighting against this for so long. You know, we only have a handful of states that report out the number of abortion survivors. And when we drill through the data that tells us that those survivors exist, you can read through those reports like Minnesota, Texas, Ohio, that make it clear that even after babies are born, after failed abortions, they're still not being provided medical care. We should be offended by this as a society. How common is an abortion survival? Yeah, that's that's the million dollar question, isn't it? People kind of go, oh, aren't, aren't you so cute? There's like one of you. Uh, no, you know, we have been connected with over 600 abortion survivors through the Abortion Survivors Network. Uh, our youngest survivors right now are six months. Um, and those are babies that have survived both chemical abortion pills not with abortion pill reversal. And we know statistically, as they're reporting out over half a million chemical abortions, you know, the last reporting period, we know that, you know, at the 10 week mark, you have about an 84% success rate. Uh, and you could start running those numbers very quickly. And so the more the abortion industry pushes chemical abortions and, you know, aren't having women receive any kind of medical care, there are going to be more and more survivors who are happening in the world. This is not a historic thing that used to happen. So our youngest are six months, our oldest survivors are in their 90s. Uh, but we know, Ellie, that the CDC themselves have clearly talked about estimating 400 to 500 live births a year after failed abortions. So you start running that data over 50 years of just Roe versus Wade in and of itself, and you're approaching you know, 20,000 abortion survivors. But you guys are going to see us putting out some data in the next few months. And we've had an intern on our policy side look at countries like Canada who do report out their incidents of failed abortions. And when you start running, you know, those numbers based on population, numbers of clinics, and then you extrapolate that data and take a look at the United States, what we have to show you very soon is going to blow people's minds. And I would say, knowing what I've seen, I believe what I've seen in that data. And it's more than 400 to 500 a year. I think there's an important point to underscore in, in what we're saying because the, these terms can, you know, get clinical or that you can start to think of the data um, sometimes rather than the stories. I know we struggle with that at American Center for Life and reporting on things like in unsafe. You know, we went over abortion facility uh, health and safety violations. And after a while, you know, my eyes kind of glaze over and you think, you know, hundreds of violations, uh, thousands of people affected, um, each one with a story. And, you know, when we're talking about uh, this language, when we're using this language of failed abortion, uh, and then you use the term live birth, right? It's like, that's that's what I think uh, certainly Planned Parenthood and other abortion businesses don't want you to realize is, you know, when you talk about an 84%, um, you know, success rate, uh, quote unquote, a terrible thing. Um, but that means at least 16% uh, of folks are, are having a live birth, right? A failed abortion means that there's a successful, live, healthy baby, or, you know, at least potentially with a chance to be healthy, provided proper care. 
uh, and that gets to the heart of it, right? Why this matters so much when we talk about uh, laws like the, you know, born alive abortion uh, survivors uh, laws that are happening on both the federal and state level. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. You know, I love that as we come off retreat, you know, I often tell people if, if the other side sat in that room full of survivors that we serve and they didn't walk out of there being changed, I would honestly be surprised by it because every story has such meaning and every person's life matters. And we are really this inconvenient truth. I mean, the, the abortionists call us the dreaded complication for a good reason because they dread the reality of a live birth, a human person as a result of an abortion failing. And, you know, what we are really working on in this new world post row is not only serving abortion survivors, abortion survivors, but serving women who have had failed abortions, because even within the pro-life movement, we haven't heard those stories over the last nearly 50 years, because, you know, there's never been space for it in this world that was so, you know, enamored and had abortion really crammed down our throats. And we are contacted regularly by women who have had failed abortions, who whisper their stories in secret. And I think there's something that's going to happen in this new space where women can heal from a failed abortion, who grapple with the shame and the guilt and the uncertainty of what their child's life might look like, the fear that they have of their child finding out their story. Uh, And so I'm excited about what we can continue to do state by state and even federally to humanize what abortion really is, uh, but raise the voices of people uh, who deserve to be heard. How did you come to reconcile with your mother? Ah, yes. All this talk of me with with mothers, right? That's really interesting. I I asked our survivors this weekend. I said, if if your family would have been supported in the face of that failed abortion and even the circumstances that led up to that abortion taking place, I said, would your lives be different? And it was unanimous, you know, people were raising their hands saying, oh my gosh, yes, my life would have been different if my family would have been supported. Because we see patterns of, you know, neglect and abuse. We see um, significant patterns of even, you know, family members attempting to end an abortion survivor's life even after they're born um, because of all of that untreated, um, unhealed circumstances that happen in those families. Uh, And I also asked survivors, would your life be different if your family would have told you your story differently? Because a lot of survivors raised in their birth family um, hear the story told in a very, um, you know, unsupportive way. Uh, You know, you should have just died like you were supposed to, right? Um, You don't fit in. You don't belong here. All of those things. And that isn't to say that their life would have been better being aborted, uh, like the other side tries to use us use against us, right? Oh, you haven't had this perfect life. Wouldn't it have been better? No, we know that. Uh, it just means we need to serve people hurt by abortion. But I can see all those things because of, yes, my circumstances with my birth mother. So, you know, found out my story when I was 14, went looking for her when I was about 19, and didn't find her till I was about 30. 
And even after that, you know, there were so many secrets that I never could have understood about her story and mine. And so we've been communicating for, oh my gosh, almost 10 years now, which is crazy for me to think about it like that. But we live in the same community. I didn't know that when we moved to Kansas City. Uh, Her family reached out to me when I had announced we were moving here. And so even just yesterday, she was texting me about something going on in her life. You know, I would not pretend for a second that this was uh, easy at first for her in particular, because she had been so traumatized by that abortion and the secrets that surrounded it. And, you know, it's really interesting because she used to say to me, you know, people in the pro-life movement love you, Melissa but I don't think they will ever love me because of what I did. And I kept saying, no, they love both of us. Um, This is what our movement is all about. And she's had that great opportunity to see that now. And, you know, one of the first messages I got on the day Roe was overturned was from my birth mother, who was celebrating the fact that it was overturned. So she's a huge part of my family's lives. That's incredible. What a gift that is. Uh, you know, I think of, uh, you know, where we've come from, which is, you know, decades of activism and advocacy on the pro-life side of this issue. And I think especially to your point there, um, showing um, often not intentionally, but just, you know, very organically uh, folks like your biological mother uh, that that loving uh, the child, loving the survivor, uh, loving the baby does not mean uh, a, a sort of an exclusionary love. It means an inclusionary love of both mother and child, um, mother, father, child, uh, whole extended families, whole communities. That's kind of, you know, that, that's the nature uh, of, of political movements is that, that for them to be authentic. And I think ultimately for any political movement really to succeed it has to be concerned with wholeness, uh, with a holistic sense of, of reality. Um, but certainly in the context that we're speaking about, at least within families. Um, and I think about uh, how natural that is, or it should be at least, for folks um, who even today might still think of themselves as pro-abortion or at least maybe sitting on the fence in some way. You know, you look at the history of activism um, from the 1960s to the present on the pro-abortion side. You look at um, second wave or later radical feminism. And you think of, I mean, I think of like the personal is the political, right? This was a, a phrase that uh, sort of defined 1960s and 70s activism. And, uh, you know, well, gosh, they're right. The personal is the political, right? And so for folks like you, Melissa, to share your story and for folks like your mother uh, to come and realize that that their stories as well have political implications, political in, tr- in the true sense, right, of how are we going to order ourselves as citizens in a free society? Are we going to do it well or are we going to do it poorly? Uh, are we going to do it in a way that, that uplifts and affirms or are we going to do it in a way that excludes and uh, sort of paternally, uh, you know, writes folks off in the way that you're describing? I think of this, it's, it really does cut to the heart of what kind of society are we, we going to become? It's a, an issue that does implicate all of us. We all have to come to a conclusion about it. Absolutely. And I love that point that you made, Tom. You know, we have lived under the rule of Roe for so long, which, you know, really attempted to pit women against their children. And now is the time, and this is really my challenge to the abortion industry and supporters to say, you know, are you going to come alongside us and work to 
you know, value both women and children because we've been doing this, you know, for 50 years. And now is their opportunity to find some consensus with us and show us that, that they care about the same thing. I think what really strikes me is the 63 million. It just, I feel like your life just shows how there were 63 million lifetimes that were um, just not able to get that gift of life. And two, it's like you have daughters now. And so it's like without, without your life, they wouldn't have life either. So it's, it really affects generations. It really does. We ran some numbers this weekend at the retreat and out of the 25 survivors there, there are there were 153 lives that have come into the world through those 25 lives. And isn't that just a beautiful picture? Because then we can start thinking, okay, out of then our 600 abortion survivors, you know, how many thousands of lives have been born from those lives? And then if we think about, you know, tens of thousands of abortion survivors, then how many people are alive today because of an abortion failing and a child being born alive? And that's how we can start to wrap our head around the loss that we've actually experienced in our world because of abortion. And I really feel like that is also the work that will continue to have to happen in our world because you know, too many people still are detached from the reality of the humanity of the child in the womb. And until they have to face what abortion truly is and does and how it does affect generations, um, you know, we still have to engage in this education. And you did that in a powerful way in your 2017 book uh, that we mentioned in the introduction, You Carried Me, A Daughter's Memoir. Do you want to highlight any particular parts of that that maybe we haven't spoken to yet in the conversation uh, for folks who absolutely should pick it up? We're going to link to it in the show notes. Yeah, it was really a powerful time for me, actually, because I learned so much about my own life through writing that book, I had given it to my birth mother for her to review it. And, you know, I had just told her, if this is not okay with you, even though I've been working on this for years, I would, I would stop this in a minute in order to make sure everything is okay with you. And within about 24 hours, not only did she approve it, but she had sent me pages of more information. And so for me, I will always remember that, that this was a labor of love for the two of us. And, you know, I do encourage people to read that book. There are parts of it that I thought I would never tell the world about the suffering that can occur for abortion survivors. But yet, you know, the hope that comes when we are able to heal and have our voice. And, you know, the the great news is I have another book coming out probably early 2023. Uh, I don't know that we're saying yet who it's with, but I'll say a major Christian publisher uh, with a, a major um, co-author who has written best-selling books and it's entitled Abortion Survivors Break Their Silence. And in it, I share about 10 to 12 abortion survivor stories and the stories of women like my birth mom whose abortions failed and had children uh, born alive as a result. That's incredible. We're going to be excited to see that book for sure. Um, I think that that segues naturally into you know your work, particularly um, we should speak more about the Abortion Survivors Network. Um, Again, I think this is this is a, an area where um, there's a lot of work within the pro-life movement that's been done for a long time in helping folks 
who are there at that pivotal point who are, you know, for instance, that 19 year old mother uh, who feels that the world maybe isn't set against them, but really couldn't care very much about how they, where they end up and how things go, uh, who feel alone. Uh, they're the targets of Planned Parenthood and abortion businesses. Um, but there's not as much conversation around this end of the abortion issue. Um, I'm curious uh, if you can speak about uh, what inspired the founding of the organization and also about uh, the, how folks are attracted to it. And if there's uh, anything in particular, you know, are, are these folks who are coming to it who they themselves think of themselves as pro-life? Uh, are they, you know, across the spectrum? Um, what is that like? Yeah, this was really born out of seeing the gap that existed in the pro-life movement. You know, I was on a path to healing. Certainly, that's probably why I have a master's degree in social work. I needed to heal myself and learned a lot along the way. And, you know, I've been doing this for about 15 years and was always kind of looking around and saying, wow, somebody should really do something to help people like me and waited and waited and waited and then realized obviously nobody was gonna know how to do it except for me and so you know we provide healing groups i wrote the curriculum for it you know one of the survivors said to me straight out of the gate this weekend i have a love-hate relationship with that book you wrote I'll take it. Um, it is not an easy process to go through to unravel um, both the joy and the suffering of surviving an abortion procedure. Uh, but we run healing groups. We offer, you know, skill development in areas like public speaking and advocacy and how to how to work with the media. You know, we have abortion survivors now who are showing up on Fox and Friends on a regular basis, focus on the family. We had survivors present with Governor DeSantis's bill signing, you know, survivor on the Ingram angle. We have survivors who are now going and testifying before state legislatures. Uh, we also have a, a 501c4, which is our education and policy center which allows us to do the research about abortion survivors that nobody has ever known before, that helps us identify gaps even in the reporting of born alive infants. Because what we find is that so many survivors have an attempt happen, say, at 10 weeks, and then mother is told the abortion is successful. Weeks or months later, she figures out she's still pregnant. And then, you know, a lot of times they're counseled to have another abortion. We even read that in medical files. Um, but, you know, ultimately she finds out weeks, months later that she's still pregnant. And a lot of times those abortion survivors are being born full term. You know, yes, sometimes we are born prematurely. I was probably 31 weeks uh, when that abortion uh, was performed. And then I was born right then in the final step of the abortion procedure. But that's not the case, you know, especially with chemical abortions. Women are taking the, the abortion pills at seven weeks, 10 weeks, and then they're giving birth full term. And so when you think about it, we're not even catching those in reporting statistics because nobody is, is reporting that that abortion was ever performed. And that concerns me not only for what happens after that child is born, but it concerns me about the physical health of that mother. It concerns me about the physical health of that abortion survivor. We heard that you have testified alongside our president, Catherine Glenn Foster. Can you just tell us more about your experience, how you started being able to testify and speaking out more? 
Yeah, uh, you know, people may not believe this about me, but I used to be uh, shy and a real people pleaser. Don't rock the boat, Melissa. I mean, really, I am a middle child, y'all. I don't know about where you are in your <laughs> in your respective families, but I, 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 I know people are like, what? Are you sure? Yes. Um, I never thought I would leave a career in social work to join the pro-life movement and form this organization. And I never thought I would ever testify before Congress. And I can tell you the first time I got the phone call, it was in 2015 when we were looking at defunding Planned Parenthood. And I can tell you exactly where I was standing when I got the call and I said, yeah, I don't think I'm the right person. You, you don't want me. And, you know, I can hear the legislative aide on the, on the other end thinking, well, I don't, I don't know. Maybe we don't have the right person. And I ended up contacting Gianna Jessen, who is a friend. And obviously so many people know that she's blazed a trail uh, for survivors in the pro-life movement. But that's how the two of us showed up, having two survivors for the first time ever testify before Congress. And after that, you know, I remember walking out of the building after this incredibly long hearing and I, I called my husband and I said, I'm not afraid of them anymore. And, you know, that's what I want for any survivor to be able to be empowered enough to face those who are making policy decisions and not be afraid to share their story and stand up for truth. And so that really is what changed within me is that one hearing. And now every time the phone rings, um, I am honored to be able to testify before Congress and even suggest other abortion survivors to do the same because it's one thing to face one of us. And yes, it's important for me as the CEO of this organization, but I believe that in order to truly change hearts and minds, they need to look in the face of my 600 abortion survivors, some of whom have significant disabilities because of that abortion attempt. They need to look at them and truly start grappling with what abortion is. Yeah, what just struck me is the dehumanization of abortion, especially when you're in court or at the committee and you're face to face with a 45 year old woman like yourself. Like you can't, yeah, you can't argue with that. Yeah, there have, there have been times where, you know, there are times where they will essentially say things like, ah, what happened to her is illegal. I mean, they were saying that in, in the time of Roe. There were abortion uh, supporter witnesses who were saying, she should not be here. She should not be here. What, what happened to her, that's not what we're talking about. And I always have to beg the question and say, what, what are we talking about then? If you're not talking about me, are we simply just talking about the abortions that that are successful, that mean that you don't have to face children like me after we're born live? I mean, is that what we're talking about? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's it's incredible to think uh, how reticent the industry is. And I think part of that is, you know, I, I'm amazed at how little uh, oversight there is. You know, we talk about 
uh, on the one end, we see abortion businesses put themselves forward as if they're just healthcare, these are just clinics, et cetera, et cetera, we're told. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, the average abortion business is, uh, I mean, it's less regulated than Twitter. Uh, I mean, give me a break as far as these being healthcare facilities. Uh, you know, you, you not, it's, it's one thing to compare them to hospitals or actual physicians' offices uh, and to notice obvious discrepancies of like, well, why is a physician having to report X, Y, and Z, but an abortion business is treated as if it's the equivalent of handing out, you know, DVDs at a blockbuster? There's a reference, Melissa. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Hey, I know it. <laughs> yeah. That's what I grew up with. But uh, in any event, uh, yeah, I think it's just it's incredible because you see right there uh, the sort of, of status quo that they want to perpetuate, which is an unregulated status quo. And so then when you hear that criticism of, oh, well, we're not talking about folks like her, or she shouldn't be here or those procedures are illegal. Uh, it's like, right. So that's I guess the good news is you're saying you'll respect the law when it changes and protects all human life. Is that the takeaway? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't we wish that was the takeaway? Uh, then there's a, a yet another pivot in uh, the intellectual dishonesty that happens. You know, it's interesting. I've been working on the Kansas Value Them Both Amendment. That's, you know, this is my backyard. And we are the first um, folks who are having uh, the first ballot initiative post Roe being overturned. And so the, the vote in Kansas is on August 2nd. And one of uh, the unfortunate things that happened in Kansas after their 2019 ruling was, you know, first dismemberment abortion bans that was overturned because the liberal activist court found a um, supposed right to abortion in the Kansas Constitution. Uh, so that allowed them to overturn dismemberment abortion. Uh, we've seen nearly a 20% increase in dismemberment abortions since that happened. And then we saw them overturn basic clinic regulation and inspections late in 2021. And now, of course, then they're working to pick off yet another. And so this is what's going to happen in Kansas is one by one, those presumed unconstitutional laws will be challenged and they will be overturned. But this is the thing, isn't it, Tom, where we're saying to people, this is common sense. I mean, shouldn't we all be voting yes for the abortion industry to be regulated and for there to be basic things like regulations and inspections? This is common sense. Yeah. And what's happening in Kansas is so important to pay attention to because I think, uh, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania originally. And similarly, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court uh, over a long time, you know, has had kind of a history. Uh, for those who follow it, this is uh, a podcast from a pro-life legal organization. Uh, but for folks who are following, you know, issues like state Supreme Court rulings, Pennsylvania has been another uh, strange one. And so that was the part that didn't surprise me when Kansas, uh, you know, the, when the Kansas Supreme Court issued that ruling a few years ago. Uh, I think it opened a lot of people's eyes to the degree of mischief that a state Supreme Court um, can engage in, uh, the effects that they can have, um, because the appointments to those uh, are, you know, usually pretty under the radar if they're even being reported at all, frankly. Uh, and then suddenly a state like Kansas, Kansas of all states, wakes up uh, and finds that uh, their judiciary has decided that their state constitution uh, protects abortion, just as if the Roe court decided that the U.S. Constitution does the same uh, when it flies in the face of just natural common sense about, you know, where do our rights come from um, if we don't have a natural right to life, uh, you know, and 
getting to the heart of these issues requires precisely the sort of political engagement that's happening now, thankfully, in Kansas. Um, but yeah, it's it's a testament to the warped time that we're in. And, and I think uh, a, a key point, which is that although Roe v. Wade is no more, the effects of Roe, which was to shift you know, from a place in the United States where really kind of just New York uh, was interested in abortion prior to 1973 uh, to a place now where the Supreme Court's effects uh, normalized abortion violence across the country and to such a degree now that, you know, two thirds of Americans uh, live in states that are going to be friendly toward abortion still. And so I don't want to downplay or minimize the the historic and important moment that Roe's reversal was in the Dobbs decision on June 24th of this year. However, uh, the Supreme Court has an awful lot more to answer for uh, than they're ever going to be able to from a standpoint of, of, uh, of political justice or social justice because they have moved the country, so much of the country's political class in states like California, uh, Illinois, Kansas on the judiciary, to this place where they've normalized something that's barbaric. Uh, and it's going to take, I think, generations more to achieve abolition, right? Absolutely agreed. As a mother, you went through your pregnancy. How do you think your experience, knowing that you almost were the result of an abortion, how do you think this impacted you when you found yourself pregnant later on? Oh, that's such a great question. You know, it's, interesting for me because I was learning parts of my story still and finding my birth family at the time that I was pregnant with our first daughter. Uh, But I can still remember, you know, everything that happened to me, you know, all the physical changes that were happening to me. And I would experience that and think, wow, my birth mother went through that. And yet still, and of course, now knowing that her circumstances were very different, uh, it actually makes it just even more heartbreaking for me uh, that she experienced what she did. But, you know, I I was doing an interview the other day with some researchers, and I, I started to cry a little bit when I was talking about even having a miscarriage with my second child, because they were asking me, you know, about my pro life beliefs and why I believe what I believe. And I said, you know, I believe. Uh, in what I believe because of science, you know, certainly, yes, I'm a person of faith, but it's science and faith and my own experience surviving an abortion. And yes, carrying children in my womb, losing my son even changed my life in such a radical way because the loss of a child has stuck with me and it always will. And, you know, that drives me too to be able to reach women because when I'm so hurt by a miscarriage, I can't even begin to imagine the suffering that comes from abortion. And, you know, as a mother myself, I I love being able to raise up this next generation of young women who know that abortion is not empowering life is what is empowering and my children are raised to know the truth and you know my un- my oldest daughter actually wants to go to law school and run for congress and so you know i'm excited about what this next generation is going to bring to the table how would you respond to people um especially women in those circumstances who are told that they have to put their careers and dreams first Ugh. That's such a disservice to women to somehow, 
you know, tell us that we can only be successful if we have abortion. You know, I don't know if you guys felt the same way when you were listening to the oral arguments in the Dobbs case. I was, I was listening to it on a flight on my way back from DC. And, you know, my poor government affairs staff had to listen to me kind of going, uh, uh, uh throughout listening to those arguments because I kept hearing that same thread. Women need abortion to be successful. We as a culture need Roe versus Wade to stand because we have become dependent upon abortion. And I was thinking, man, as a woman, I I would I would be offended by this, even if I wasn't pro-life. And so, yes, I mean, we don't need abortion to be successful. Abortion hurts women and children and it's harmed our culture. Just as you said, Tom, it's gonna to take us generations to rebuild a culture of life because of the damage that has been done. But I would say, you know, look upon my life and the lives of, you know, millions of other women who continue to achieve great things and are blessed to be, you know, both successful women and mothers. Yeah, and that too, that that idea of the reliance interest uh, was imported from where? From the Supreme Court. And so it's become something that, uh, again, frankly, in a very paternalistic way, we saw in Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992, the Supreme Court once again casting about for kind of a reason why we you know, should keep the uh, you know, abortion at the heart of American culture. And they decided, ah, well... You know, right or wrong in Roe in 1973, since then, you know, a lot of people have made consumer and economic decisions based on our jurisprudence. And therefore, uh, you know, we should continue the status quo at the time. And that, you know, has kept, that kept us for another 30 years, practically, with abortion. Uh, and so uh, it's an important step now. I think uh, the, the work you're doing, Melissa, uh, I think is crucial, um, helping elevate and uplift folks who uh, too often have been told that, you know, even if they find the courage to speak, that what they have to say doesn't matter. Uh, and and helping elevate and uplift those folks and affirm them that it does matter and that it's actually crucial to everything we're about in this country. It's crucial to free speech. It's crucial to the, to the democratic process. It's crucial to our health as a, as a commonwealth, as a common wheel, right? Absolutely. Going back to the theme of motherhood, um, how do, did this kind of like, when you were, when you became a mother, did you find that it motivated you in your mission? Ooh, I love these questions about motherhood. We need to talk about this as a culture. I, yeah, definitely my, my role as a mother does motivate me. You know, I talk about this in, in You Carried Me. You know, the moment I found out but I, when I was about 20 weeks pregnant, when I found out that we were having a girl, I was so sure I was having a boy. Uh, and I found out I was having a daughter and I honestly wept right there in the hospital room and, and certainly out of joy, but also out of the gravity of knowing that I was going to have a daughter who I wanted the world to be a different place for. You know, I wanted her to have a different experience than my birth mother and, and what I experienced. And so definitely that is a driving force for me every single day to change the world for her, one life and one family, you know, one policy at a time, but also to, you know, raise her up to know the truth about humanity and not be afraid for her to fight for it too. 
I would just let people know they can find us. Our, our website is abortionsurvivors.org. Uh, you can follow us on social media. Our handle is at the Abortion Survivors Network. Uh, people can follow me. My handles for everything are at Melissa Oden, O-H-D-E-N. And, you know, follow us in terms of the policy work that we do, too. You know, we're very much involved state by state, um, not only in ballot initiatives that are happening, but Born Alive, you know, every kind of law that is happening at this point. Uh, we also uh, had a role to play in the Standing with Moms Act that Representative Nancy Mace uh, just had shared last week. And so we very much are a part of things that are happening across the nation. All right. Well, Melissa, thanks so much for all you're doing and for all you're going to continue to do. We're going to link to all your great resources, your social media, your website, and uh, and your book. And we're going to look forward to the book to come. Thank you for previewing that today. Got a little sneak peek on the show. Absolutely. And I will see you all, I'm sure, uh, in D.C. sometime soon. I am Tom Shakely. Thank you for listening to Life liberty and law.